Welcome to Cybercast 2.0. I'm your host, James Mersall. As many of our listeners are aware, the topic of partnerships comes up frequently in cybersecurity. Partnership between the public and private sectors, partnership between federal agencies and lawmakers on the Hill, and partnerships between the federal government and state and local governments. And while these are often discussed in broad terms, it is less common to hear representatives from both sides discuss how those partnerships are coming together. On this episode of Cybercast, we're speaking with Stephen Vigna, Senior Vice President and Senior Advisory Specialist with the Marsh Cyber Center of Excellence, and Daniel Cruz, Associate Director of the National Risk Management Center at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. We talked to Stephen and Daniel about both sides of public-private partnerships. Both of our guests also have prior experience working on Capitol Hill, as Stephen previously worked as the subcommittee staff director for the House Homeland Security Committee and the chief counsel for Homeland Security on the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. And Daniel worked as chief of staff for a U.S. representative who was involved with Homeland Security Affairs. They share their insights on how to get bipartisan, bicameral support on security issues, even where there are some areas of disagreement. We also discuss how to spread awareness of risk across all sectors, how to support not just cybersecurity, but cyber resiliency against new threats, and where those with limited budgets can find the most value for their money. Thank you for joining us, Stephen and Daniel. Let's get started. Daniel, start with you. Could you frame for us the, the current state of cybersecurity in the government? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the good news is, is we have seen, particularly in the last year, year and a half here, a lot more effort around better clarifying roles, lanes, who does what to ensure that we're all marching in the same direction in the federal government. And obviously, this is a very important issue set, and you need to ensure that we understand the landscape, who does what, and how we can achieve the security and resilience goals that we all agree are important. Obviously, I'm coming from perhaps somewhat of a a biased perspective, but I think a particularly important development over the last few years here has been the creation of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, where I'm proud to work to act as the lead civilian cybersecurity agency and formalizing that role within DHS and clarifying our mission and elevating it somewhat has been significant from our standpoint, both for our federal.gov protection mission, which is an important aspect of federal cybersecurity efforts, and then as sort of the storefront or conduit to a lot of our private sector critical infrastructure partners. And so the engagement, collaboration, and just general level of activity around cybersecurity, particularly as it relates to the nation's critical infrastructure, has not been stronger from my vantage point. That's great to hear and definitely great to see the work that CISA has done, even though what's been a year since its creation. Could you give us an example or an overview overview rather of how cyber risk is important and why it's so critical for government and as a focus for CISA? Yeah, I think increasingly, whether you're talking to our, our CISA leadership team, whether you're talking to other members throughout the interagency or frontline critical infrastructure owners and operators, which touches a wide swath of different industries and verticals, whether it's financial services or nuclear energy or oil and natural gas or healthcare and public health. There's been this realization that, and a rightful realization, that cybersecurity for those enterprises is not just an IT issue, it's an enterprise risk management issue and must be treated as such. And that might seem like a small distinction, but I think really important in terms of how organizations are viewing cybersecurity. It's not just a nuisance of, ah, the HR system went down. It is now recognizing that the cyber attack vector has implications for economic security, national security, public health and safety, and everything across. The functionality of the stuff we need as Americans, and then also the protection of the sensitive information that accompanies a lot of those activities. And so So I I really think that enterprise risk management view of cybersecurity has been a welcome shift. Absolutely. 
So, Stephen, you work as a, a cyber risk broker. For those in the audience who may not have heard of that, that term or that position before, can you give us an overview of what a cyber risk broker is? You know, in its most traditional sense, an insurance broker is someone that works on behalf of another organization or a company and goes and obtains insurance for them. In the cyber world, it, it's, it's more complex. And it, it's something that, you know, we take pride in at Marsh, uh, where we're able to, to do several things for our clients and really become what we want is a, a trusted cyber advisor. And basically, we kind of break that down into three main categories. We help our clients understand the cyber risk. And really, that gets down to things like understanding their controls in place. Who are the, the threat actors? What are the threat actors after? So they can really understand the types of information that they have and, and the value that it is to people who may want it. Second, we really want to help them measure their cyber risk. And that gets to quantification. There's a lot of tools out there for modeling different types of cyber exposures. Uh, A lot of models out there for data privacy, you know, how much does a a record cost if it's out in the open market in the, in the, the black market for business interruption as well. So different types of modeling is critically important to really understanding the next part is really helping you manage your cyber risk. And that gets to actually the insurance part of it, helping you transfer your risk off your balance sheet. But at the end of the day, we're talking again about being a cyber advisor and really helping our clients, as, as Daniel mentioned, looking at their risk from an enterprise perspective. It's a, cyber has really grown into a business risk. And that's great to hear, especially considering I know early on in my career, I heard from someone at NIST who said you know, he had gone in to talk to a utility company about quantifying their cyber risk and, and came in more from a tools-based perspective and said, do you need to implement this? You need to have this control. And they stopped and said, you know, what is the value of this? And, and what is what do I stand to lose if I don't do this? And I think being able to quantify that more in that business term has been very beneficial. And uh, know, Daniel, if you've seen the same thing from a government perspective or, or how cyber risk is quantified from CISA's perspective? Yeah, we've been actively engaged with a whole host of different stakeholder groups in the critical infrastructure community. But a realization that we had was that over the last decade or so, we've built a lot of very mature relationships at kind of the more technical network defense level, mm-hmm. your CISOs, your CIOs, your CTOs. And then we recently stood up within CISA, the National Risk Management Center, which I have the, the privilege of help leading. And as we were standing it up and sort of figuring out what parts of CISA focus on, you know, what does the daily blocking and tackling of vulnerability and network defense and info sharing capacity building, or are we doing kind of the longer term systemic risk, understanding interdependencies, we recognize that engaging not just at the network technical level, but at the chief risk officer enterprise risk management level was an area where we probably admittedly had not engaged quite as heavily over the years. And so that's something that we really took upon ourselves. Obviously, we want to maintain those strong relationships at the more technical network defense level. But we also can have really robust conversations about cybersecurity risk management with non-technical cyber people as well. We can talk about cyber risk in plain English, and we had not been doing it. We can talk about cyber risk beyond just sharing an automated real-time fashion, millions of technical threat indicators about a bad IP address, or here's some malware analysis, you can bring it up a level. And I remember last month at the CISA Cybersecurity Conference, Chris Krebs saying the focus wasn't necessarily on the people who were there. They had already gotten the message to some degree, but being able to take that message and send it out to the agencies, the companies, the, the stakeholders who still want that information, either at the technical level or a few levels up, 
um, but making sure that they're involved in the conversation. What we always like to see is, is someone, what we deal directly mostly with the risk management office, but to also see IT and, and security involved in those discussions when we're talking about the risk management and the insurance renewals, and then someone at the at the C-suite, at the, the executive level. So kind of an, a triangle of people coming together to talk about cyber risk, because really, we're, we're talking about a business enterprise risk. So Stephen, I also wanted to ask you, you know, what is the importance of companies like Marsh to be at the forefront of cyber risk? Right. So I think Marsh brings a critical voice to the cyber discussion. I think it's one that, that may get overlooked as well. I think companies spend a lot of time, and rightfully so, talking about identification, detection, and protection. You know, putting up the firewalls and updating and patches, those things are all critically important and need to be done. But take it to the next step, and you think about the NIST framework and kind of that five spokes on the wheel. What happens when your company does get hit by a breach or has downtime from a, a ransomware attack? Mm-hmm. Well, now we're talking about response and recovery. And, and ultimately, we're talking about, again, business resilience. And then that's where I think Marsh and, and, and cyber insurance generally really comes into play, really helping companies get back on their feet as soon as possible. I appreciate that Stephen brought up the word resilience. Security is obviously very important. Security is in CIS's name twice. It's a core part of what we do. But we don't want to let security become some artificially binary construct where you either flip the switch and you've done enough and you're secure or you're, you have and you're insecure. You need to think about resilience across the board and redundancy and understand through a risk management lens what is my organization? What do we do? What is our attack surface? Where are we more vulnerable? Where are we less so? What are our more critical business processes? How are those architectured? How are those segmented? What is our, and kind of look at this holistic lens, and then you can harden systems and add resilience in a more targeted, prioritized, and strategic way. And that all comes under this banner of resilience, which I think is a real good guiding North Star for us in a lot of these conversations. Mm-hmm. So, Daniel, I, I know, I mean, I, I've been to a number of cybersecurity events, either with CISA speakers or just talking about cybersecurity generally in the government. I think one of the common refrains I hear is, you know, finding ways to partner with industry to find solutions, whether it's ways to be more resilient, ways to reduce vulnerabilities, ways to measure cyber risk. So how is CISA working with companies and uh, what industry partnership strategies are you pursuing? CISA at large, we describe ourselves as the nation's risk advisor. And we use that word advisor, not manager, pretty deliberately. Mm -hmm. We don't physically sit on top of networks and manage them for our external stakeholders. We have a whole suite of tools, capacity building, information sharing, voluntary assessments, other educational tabletop exercises, other partnership activity to help those organizations understand the risk, better contextualize it, and then understand how they can best manage it with the threat environment that we have. And so one of the the ways we gauge across the, the largest community of stakeholders is within the 16 sector critical infrastructure process, the information sharing of cyber threat indicators across those through CISA and a lot of the ISACs and other organizations that are plugged in there. And so there's a pretty broad reach and kind of multiplier effect across that. A lot of our assessment tools are widely used across critical infrastructure sectors. Increasingly, we have taken those as excellent springboard of things that we need to be doing and need to continue increasing adoption of. These as a springboard for deeper risk management partnership and initiative. And I think that's been a really exciting thing to witness recently where I'll use our ICT supply chain risk management task force as one example there. We have 20 representatives across the interagency 
and then 40 of the largest IT and communication sector industry partners involved in this task force, which is a voluntary partnership CPAC structure to understand and look at some strategic areas where supply chain risk management needs more guidance and actionable recommendations and start to tackle those head on. And so we actually had a, a hearing on the Hill where you had the chair of the IT sector coordinating council, the chair of the communication sector coordinating council, and then my boss, Bob Kalaski, who runs the National Risk Management Center, all testifying literally side by side there, talking about their work in that partnership structure. And I'm told that's actually reasonably unprecedented for the department where you oftentimes have congressional hearings where you'll have the government panel and then you'll have the industry panel after that. But we talk about this vision of shoulder to shoulder integration to manage cyber risk. That was for us a pretty neat visualization and actualization of like right there, that moment those three leaders, one within government, one running the IT sector coordinating council, and one running the comm sector coordinating council, all three testifying together about what they're doing together collaboratively to manage risk to ICT supply chains. And so to me, that's been a really exciting development is to take all the great work that's already been done across the 16 sectors with the info sharing, the alerts, the assessments and all that, and layer on top of that deeper initiatives and partnership. I think I've heard supply chain security referred to as a whole of nation effort mm -hmm. more than once, and there's the visual representation of it right there. So, Stephen, let me ask you, I, I know Marsh has a cyber center of excellence. What is the center of excellence looking to accomplish? Sure. So the center of excellence is our, our team of brokers that work with clients of all sizes on their, their risk mitigation, risk management strategies. You know, ultimately, we, we want to be your trusted cyber risk advisor. And I talked about some of the, the things that we do to do that. We also want to make sure that the market, as the world's largest broker, make sure that the insurance markets are responding to the different types of threats that we've seen. The ransomwares are becoming more destructive. How is the insurance market responding to that? Are those being responsive to the client's needs? We're starting to see a lot more reputational harm and, you know, deep fakes. Is, is the insurance market responding to that? So really trying to help making sure that the insurance is adjusting to the types of threats we are seeing. We want to help our clients think strategically about cyber risk. We talked a little bit here earlier about, you know, making sure that there's executive level buy-in and making sure that the core stakeholders in a company understand the, the cyber risk that they're facing. There's, you know, an evolving regulatory environment, you know, that, you know, this is kind of part and parcel with cyber, but not necessarily a cyber threat, but, you know, it's a reaction that governments all around the world are having towards, you know, the uptick in, in different types of cyber events, and particularly just data management and privacy and how companies hold and manage data. So that's a, an evolving regulatory risk that we really try to help our clients understand. So I know you started your career at the Congressional Research Service. What was something you learned while you were working there? Yeah, many moons ago. So CRS, I mean, for those that may not know, is, is the, the research arm for Congress. In many ways, it's like a think tank, but it's nonpartisan. And so working there, you know, this was my first job out of law school. So, you know, a lot of understanding how to write and think critically like a lawyer, maybe that might be a bad thing for some folks, but there was a lot of that. And really, you know, conducting rigorous policy analysis. Time and time again, we had to go back, I mean, decades, looking into the, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, trying to understand the intent of Congress and seeing how it applies now. And, and when you're talking about IT laws, uh, you know, the, the things that we're, you know, legislating on just maybe 10 years ago are already maybe out of date. And so there was a lot of historical analysis looking into those laws and trying to really get in the minds of, of that Congress at that time, understanding the political and policy realities and seeing how they might apply here so we can have some lessons learned. So there's some real critical analysis there about understanding 
how to look holistically at an issue, trying to understand all the sides before you put pen to paper and, and make judgment. And so the members really relied on CRS to kind of give that, you know, down the line type of analysis. But one of the most important things I learned in a real quick story is that these issues are critically important, no matter how big or how small an issue may be, is critically important to livelihood of, of Americans across the country. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget, when I first started CRS, I was asked to do agriculture law, water law, and homeland security. And I was given a, an assignment to look into some laws back in the 20s or 30s and, and having it applied to the issue re- essentially revolved around raisins. And I'm sitting there on like the 10th page of my legal analysis on raisins in the 1920 Act of Agriculture, something or other. And, and I'm there and it's just really dawned on me that the issues that we work on at CRS are just there's a constituency. There's people behind these raisins and that the issues that we're working on really matter. And that there's, it's a livelihood for, for a lot of these folks. And so it really just kind of sunk in about the issues that you work on, on the, you know, how fortunate we are on, on for those that work on the Hill, being able to work on those issues. And it really just drove home the point that it matters to someone. So following your time at CRS, you then served as a senior counsel for Homeland Security to both the House and the Senate Homeland Security Committees. What were some of the technologies and initiatives that you had in focus during that time? Sure. So when I joined the House, I uh, started off working on border security immigration issues. I then moved over and, and became a subcommittee director on the emergency management, our FEMA subcommittee, and then after that, our counterterrorism subcommittee. Worked on a variety of, of big big projects, big oversight issues. On the border side, you know, one that we worked on a lot was, you know, the quote-unquote virtual fence. And this was, you know, essentially how do we put up technology along the border to supplement, you know, some of the more traditional fencing and other types of items. So, you know, things like radars, sensors, UAVs, lighting, you know, a whole host of different uh, types of technologies that put up on the border. So, you know, worked a, a lot on, on that issue. Worked a lot on biometric entry exit. I believe they're still uh, piloting certain programs right now. So looked a lot about how do we implement an exit program in, in the United States at our, at our airports, looking at the different technologies of how to collect those biometrics. Yeah, I think the technology has come a long way now, and, and uh, we had to create a, a more efficient process. Looked a lot at travel modernization, looking at the ports of entry, looking at how do we, you know, Passenger facilitation. How do we make that process more efficient and, and also secure? So x-ray technology, handheld devices. Uh, so a lot of things along the border. Moving over to FEMA, worked a lot on our the National Emergency Alert System. So I, I, IPAWS is the, one of the acronyms used. Mm-hmm. Worked on that, that issue as it was getting rolled out. Worked a lot on, on supply chain and logistics management. A lot of people, you know, after a disaster, people want to be helpful. They want to send goods and food and, and you name it to wherever the disaster location is. But from a, a logistics standpoint, you need process plans and procedures in place to make sure you can, can get the material. You can solicit, collect, and get what's needed and then get it to the place on time. In, at the time I was working on this, it was the hurricane that, that went through Haiti mm-hmm. or the earthquakes and different things. And there's just massive disaster and, and people wanted to be helpful. But how do we make sure we're, we're doing that in the most effective way possible? So there's big IT systems behind that as well. And then moving over to the Senate, worked a lot on cybersecurity. And this is where we, we you know, really proud of the work we, we were able to do there in the Senate Homeland Security Committee. Worked on, on programs, putting a lot of foundations in place that Daniel and his team have been able to really take off with. You know, the, the Einstein program, the Continuous Diagnostics Monitoring Program. Mm. These were authorized when I was there. We authorized the NKIC and really put the foundation there for that as well. 
a FISMA reform is another big uh, law that we passed during my time, providing DHS with binding authority so they can have agencies give them so a little more teeth to work with other agencies uh, on, on some of these critical initiatives. So a lot, a variety of different cyber issues, uh, a lot of oversight on, on breaches and, and such, but a lot of fond memories of and late nights <laughs> working on the Hill. Yes. I know there's a lot of talk about the approach to getting bipartisan, bicameral buy-in to changes in security policy. And I think if any of us in this room had the silver bullet answer to this, we wouldn't be here. We'd be single-handedly advising both houses of Congress and making a Killian contracting fees doing it. Given your past experience, what best practices would you share? And are there any common pitfalls that you witnessed that we should think about going forward when it comes to security policy? Sure. So one, it really starts at the top with your boss. And I've been blessed to work with some great members and and really understood the importance of working across the aisle to get things done. And so, you know, I, I think that sets the tone. But it's also incumbent on the staff to build their own relationships and to really build a good working understanding with your counterparts, whether it's on the Hill or in the administration, to get things done and to be able to build trust and build a rapport and being able to go back and forth and understand that it's a negotiation and there's certain things that they will not be able to give on and and vice versa. And, and so the, it really understanding those types of things. But you know, as far as just kind of simple best practices, uh, you know, my old boss used to talk a lot about a, an 80-20 rule. If we can agree on about 80% of those of things and maybe set aside the 20% that maybe we can't agree on, and we can focus, we can get a lot done on that 80% and make some real concrete steps and improvement and kind of work on that muscle memory of, of getting things done across the aisle and working together and building kind of a, a foundation for future work where maybe those more challenging issues that we set aside we can come back to later. Again, member involvement, getting members involved early is critically important, and then stakeholder engagement as well. As far as pitfalls, I think holding grudges for, you know, you did this to me at this time, and I'm mm. therefore I'm not going to work with you, I think that can really hurt relationships. An unwillingness to compromise, I think compromise has taken a, a bad word, and then there's a lot that can get done. Again, if you think about that 80-20 rule and our willingness to compromise. Daniel, I know you worked on security policy on the Hill as well before joining CISA. What best practices would you share, given your more recent experience? I think a best practice I would highlight is that Increasingly, cybersecurity isn't a niche issue area. Mm-hmm. So saying cybersecurity is almost like saying economics. And so saying we want better cybersecurity is almost saying like we want a better economy or something. Is that broad of an overarching banner at this point? And so on the Hill, you need to scope and find the discrete problem you're hoping to solve and then advance the ball there and not always try to boil the ocean, but find a place where there's a gap where you think you with your boss and other staff and members can add value. And so if you look at underneath the banner of cybersecurity, how many different lanes are there of related but somewhat distinct policy areas? You have sort of the pure federal network defense, FISMA type issues that we deal with quite a bit. You've got all the stuff around the partnership and the critical infrastructure community. You've got in intelligence lanes and authorities around that. You have law enforcement issues that then touch encryption and lawful access and other things. And so you can sort of go down the line. All those are technically cyber, but all have their own distinct flavor, a number of different committees and stakeholders in those. And so remember first coming into an office that was very cyber heavy on the Hill, for me, it was sort of feeling comfortable 
that I understood the full landscape underneath that overarching word cyber. And when I felt like I kind of had it compartmentalized in a way that made sense to me, recognizing there's not one sort of magic one pager on it, I felt like then, even if there was an issue area or a lane I was less mature in my understanding of, I at least understood how it fit together, how it related, how the stakeholder groups overlapped, and felt like I could get a handle of it and then come up with a policy recommendation of it. So I think getting a handle on the ecosystem of cyber policy is fundamental as a predicate to then being a driver of effective implementation of cyber policy. As someone who advises the private sector on cyber risk management, Stephen, how would you explain the value of cybersecurity of an, a- an agency or even the value of the components of cybersecurity to an agency or a company seeking to make the most of its IT budget? So every company and, and you know every agency for that matter, you know, their cyber risk profile is unique. They mm-hmm. need to take an in- inside look and understand and, and think about what's important to them. What's the information that their most critical information or, or processes that they're trying to protect? And then they really kind of just need to take a deep inward look of the company and what it means to them and understand their risk profile, understand their risk appetite. So they can make those decisions about what kind of risk do we want to accept? What kind of risk do we want to mitigate or manage? And what kind of risk do we want to transfer or avoid altogether? Maybe we don't want to be in this business. After after GDPR, we saw some companies that say, you know what, maybe we don't need to hold all this personal information anymore. And so they kind of say, we're, we're going to avoid this risk altogether. Others said, we're going to embrace it and we're going to create new technologies to mitigate this type of uh, uh, risk for this type of exposure. And others, you know, there, there's cyber insurance available for, for GDPR risk. So, you know, there, there's those kinds of calculations for every company that they need to kind of consider and think about. And so when we, when we talk to companies, you know, we, we're trying to really understand what's their thinking about cyber risk and how they approach it. And then we can help them kind of understand, measure, and manage it. So this one, next one to, to both of you, really. Again, I know different agencies have different risk profiles. Steve, I think it's a great point. And, and Daniel, to your point, that there are you know, many components to cybersecurity, and it's a whole category that requires a lot of inputs. So you know, if an agency with, irrespective of the size of the, the cybersecurity budget, if they've got an additional dollar to spend somewhere within cybersecurity, thinking about risk management and where they get the most value, where should they put that dollar? Yeah, that's a, a great question. We'll give sort of two potential answers there. Obviously, having a resilient, secure digital infrastructure is not free. It costs money. You have to have a whole lifecycle approach to your infrastructure and your security tools on top of that. Cannot understate the importance of the awareness piece and putting dollars and the marginal dollars to understanding the size of your attack surface, who's on your network, where they are on your network, what they have access and privilege to, what is going on your network, how many things are connected to your network. Those sound like really basic and fundamental questions. But a lot of times when organizations have built up their digital infrastructure and stovepipes, it's actually harder just to have one dashboard that shows you all that in a succinct way. This is a lot of the the stuff that CDM, our Continuous Diagnostics Mitigation Program, which Stephen talked about earlier in his efforts to help give us authorization for that. But that's a lot of what that's trying to give us is like step one is let's actually understand what we're working with here. Can't protect it if you don't know what it is and where it is. And so I think that's one potential answer there in terms of that marginal dollar. You really need to understand what you're dealing with. And then in a world of constrained resources, you can make smart risk-informed decisions about your IT infrastructure and your security tools as well. And the second is, I think, one that people often forget, but sort of playbooking type activity. There's a lot of 
consequence modeling, playbooking, tabletopping, where the cost is really just blocking out three hours in a conference room and getting people there. But that process, doctrine, and internal framework development of how we deal with certain situations, you can procure all the expensive IT and security controls in the world. You also need to have the internal structure and processes of how you use those, what happens in an incident, left of boom, right of boom, all of that. And so that's in terms of the sort of a pure answer to your marginal dollar question, literally for a dollar. Mm-hmm. You can do that type of activity, maybe even for free. Just get a conference room for three hours. I think for a lot of organizations, that is the overlooked step often. We'll see if my editor nods along with me or shakes her head. But the idea of trying to block out a conference room in our offices for three hours and get every time in everyone's schedules to block out anything sounds like quite the challenge. But if you can get it done, you know, the payoff is hopefully much, much more than the time and effort it takes to, to get that together. I'll, I'll just add, when, when we do talk with insurance companies now, one of, one of the prominent questions they ask about clients and, and two clients is, not only do you have the processes and plans in place, but have you exercised them? Uh, have you exercised your, your backup resiliency, you know, your backup data plans when a ransomware attack hits? What is your PR strategy when a ransomware attack hits and who, or, or your notification strategy and credit monitoring, all those types of things that happen after a data uh, breach? You know, in the terrorism world, you always hear about, you know, you don't want it the, the first time that you're meeting law enforcement is after an event or, or after any kind of, you know, event. But in cyber, it's the same kind of thing. After a big data breach, you don't want the first time that you're talking with your, your PR team about, you know, how are you going to respond to this incident being there after that event? So really, to Daniel's point, getting folks in, in, in the room and, and exercising these types of uh, situations is something that I know the insurance markets definitely look at when they're looking to evaluate a company's risk profile. So just a few more questions now. We ask all of our guests on, on Cybercast to get a sense of the threat landscape and also the solutions to some of the major threats coming down the, the pipeline or just challenges coming down the pipeline. So you know, over your careers, what trends and evolving threats have you witnessed? I think a big one that's taken a lot of interagency coordination is obviously the election security threat. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also one of the undertold success stories of government going from 2016 when admittedly as a society we were caught flat-footed with that attack vector being leveraged by foreign adversaries, Russia, to try to influence our democratic processes. What was done between 2016 and 2018 between agencies like CISA with law enforcement, the intelligence community, state and locals, the election vendors themselves, standing up the whole ISAC that didn't exist before, getting Albert sensors on close to 100% state election infrastructure, having national tabletop exercises with 45 or 46 states that participated in, and just generally turning the trust from being a little bit you know, frosty in some situations to a hand-in-hand partnership. It was an incredibly remarkable sort of two-year surge that happened between 2016-2018. It's something that we are continuing to double down on for 2020 and a huge focus of our agency and of the USG. You know, I would just say in, since the Hill and, and then into the private sector, I just the, the attacks have become much more destructive in nature. No longer stealing information and the data breaches, that that's still a common threat. But now these ransomware events, they're able to knock out companies or degrade service for weeks at a time in some cases. And so that type of evolution is, we're seeing it continue. So those destructive attacks is, is really something that's kind of morphed over time. 
just a couple others, the supply chain and just looking at, you know, those third party relationships, third and fourth party relationships in many cases. Again, this is an issue that comes up frequently when we're talking with underwriters that they're asking those questions about companies. You know, how are you managing your vendor relationships? Whether from an IT perspective, what kind of due diligence are you doing, particularly in a merger and acquisition uh, landscape? What does that IT due diligence look like? So supply chain is definitely front and center in, in, all, in, the, in the work that I do. And the last thing I'll mention is, and I've said it previously, was about privacy and just kind of the regulatory environment, mm-hmm. whether it's in uh, internationally a GDPR, California, CCPA, Illinois with a biometric statute. All these different laws are, are coming into effect, and it's really asking, you know, putting a lot of work on companies to really look how are they managing consumer information? What is the policies and the procedures and really the the network configurations? If someone says, I need to know, I want to know all the information you have about me, do you have those constructs in place to do that? So next question, kind of a logical follow on, you know, what have you seen in the, the solutions to those threats? Sounds like a lot of what you're saying is about the partnerships going. Thankfully, I don't think we've seen a major cabinet-level government agency or a huge company get hit with a ransomware attack or have a huge security breach, knock on wood. I think some corporations maybe, but is the solution more partnership? Yeah, it's been great to hear from election security. The effort that it takes to work between CISA and local and state-level agencies, but knowing that that partnership and that you know, being able to walk hand-in-hand hand is has evolved now. Partnerships vitally important. It's not going away anytime soon. We're doubling down on those efforts and we need to think something we're trying to balance in terms of the solution. On one hand, having the systemic risk awareness as it relates to advanced persistent threats and nation state actors, the threat environment certainly has changed there and we need to contextualize that. On the other hand, there's still basic blocking and tackling cyber essentials that Mm -hmm. relatively mature organizations are just not doing. And we don't want to create a culture where we sort of trick ourselves that we just need to squint our eyes and hope for the best. And maybe in 10 years through AI and quantum, we'll have innovated our way out of those problems. Innovation is great. And we are certainly pro-innovation. There are basic things, 10-year-old principles using 10-year-old technology that organizations are not implementing today. And they're getting popped as a result. That's a gap that needs to be filled. So how do we balance a threat environment where systemic cascading impacts mm-hmm. are, demand our attention? But then I'll also forget that there is just essential basic stuff that we need to help through our partnerships, empower organizations to do that they haven't. So for both of you, what do you see as a major initiative or challenge in cybersecurity that's not being talked about right now or perhaps just not being talked about enough? One issue I think is, is a sleeping giant is, is data integrity attacks. And, and we're starting to see the Hill. They're talking about it now, you know, from a legislative standpoint. Uh, you know, I know there's been bills introduced as well. But, you know, really, really looking at those, you know, right now, the, the buzzword is deep fakes, but it could be so much more than that as well. I think companies and, and agencies, were, they're battle tested against confidentiality attacks, so basically data breaches. The availability of information through ransomware attacks, they're also, you know, pretty well ready for that as well. But data integrity tax, I, I think this is something that the companies are really start, starting to wake up to and then really try to understand what does that mean for my organization if, uh, you know, I cannot rely that the information on my website is truthful or is accurate. Someone has gone on there and has manipulated data on my, my 10K report or some type of other public filing, unbeknownst to me. 
So I think those are issues that I think we're going to start hearing a lot more about. I, from uh, There was public reporting about a, a CEO in, in, in the UK or in, in, in Europe through a deep, a deep fake, you know, that was able was able to do conduct a fraudulent transfer of funds. So I think this is kind of the tip of the iceberg, and we might start hearing more about those. And thinking about the federal push for AI and automation, all that rests on large data sets. And if those aren't secure or if there's problems with its integrity, I can only imagine what the consequences would be. I think in a connected systems of systems world where there's a lot of commonality of attack surface and one sector does not exist in a silo but things cascade and all sorts of interdependencies exist, we have spent a lot of time and attention on the IT side of the house and not as much on the OT side mm-hmm. of the house. And you hear all the time ITOT convergence, which is kind of a buzzword now. But I think particularly understanding the cyber risk in industrial settings where we're not just talking about a potential risk of the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of data, but because of the functionality of what happens in an industrial setting, potentially a public health and safety impact Mm -hmm. due to the, the potential subversion of some of those industrial control systems and what they power, CISA has made a big push in the last year to help lead an interagency effort around an industrial control system strategy that we've been working on with our interagency partners on. I think that's an important area, particularly just with the commonality of ICS attack surface across almost every single one of those 16 critical infrastructure sectors. Well, it takes me back to my cybersecurity coursework in grad school where we just spent an entire week on ICS security. And I remember one of the takeaways back then, this was spring of 2018, so hopefully I'm not scaring our audience and there have been more advancements, but uh, it was sort of the only reason we haven't seen a remote attack on a power plant that causes a turbine to explode is because no one's done it yet. But I've been to a number of CISA events for hearing about the advancements in ICS security. It seems like kind of getting ahead of maybe nothing quite that large is predicted in in the long term, especially because of the implications. But Knowing that there has been a push towards that is good to know. Yeah. Thank you both for coming on Cybercast. Hope you enjoyed it and look forward to seeing what you do next in your your line of work. All right. Thank Thank you. Cybercast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. It is hosted by James Mersall and produced by Amy Kluber. It is edited by Resonate Recordings. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.